This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 31st, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Caitlin Higgs-Priest joins Julia Rosen to talk about the response of carbon trapped in soils to a warming world. Our book segment is back with Jen Goldbeck. She talks with Rob Dunn, author of the book Never Out of Season, how having the food we want when we want it threatens our food supply and our future. And finally, Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our daily news site, and she's here to tell us about some recent online stories. First up, we have one on preventing life on Mars. Many people really, really, really want to find life on Mars. There's also a science to preventing it, to keep invading microbes off the red planet. Why do we want to stop that, Catherine? What's the big, what's the danger here? As much as some of us might want to see life on other planets, scientists generally agree that it's not a good idea, especially as we try to figure out whether places like Mars and the ocean moons of Enceladus and Europa already host life. If we were to inadvertently drop some bugs there, we'd never know if the life we found was theirs or ours. Likewise, astrobiologists, and these are the scientists who study space biology, would have a really hard time figuring out how life arose on other planets if we contaminate them first. Right. So we basically end up with an endless debate about whether the life came from Mars or came from Earth. Exactly. There is a strong possibility that this could happen. People have looked at equipment destined for Mars. What did they see when they did a close examination? All sorts of good stuff. The equipment that we send into space undergoes some pretty thorough decontamination. But one particularly stubborn strain of the rod-shaped bacteria, Bacillus pamilus, was found even in the cleanest of clean rooms at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California, where Mars-bound spacecraft are assembled. That strain outlasted waves of high-powered chemical disinfectants and survived as a spore in dry conditions with almost no nutrients. But here's the best part, Sarah. It even lasted 18 months in outer space. 
in experiments performed by astronauts aboard the International Space Station. That still doesn't quite answer the question of whether or not it would make it all the way to Mars. And so some new research looked at kind of mocking that type of journey. What did they do? Believe it or not, the Earth's stratosphere is actually a good analog for Mars. It's dry, it's cold, and it has next to no nutrients. You know, so don't go up there for your lunchtime run. Um, So a team of scientists launched a giant balloon into the stratosphere and coated its payload with tens of millions of bacillus spores. That's a lot more than would normally stow away, but they said they wanted to go for that nightmare scenario. They also wanted to find out if the leading contender for decontamination— UV light from the sun actually worked. And guess what? After just eight hours in the air, 99.999, and I think I'm getting those nines right, 99.999 of all the spores were dead. So good news. If anything being sent to Mars is exposed to sunlight, the UV from sun is probably going to kill off most of these hop-ons. But not every part and little crevice and layer of the stuff that we send to Mars is exposed to UV during normal operations, right? Right. And that exposure makes all the difference in the world for those little hop-ons. In this experiment, metal plates exposed to the sun literally killed it. But those on the flip side, the shady upside-down surfaces of the payload, didn't take the same hit. Because spacecraft aren't really designed with microbial death in mind, scientists will have to come up with new ways to decontaminate them before launching them into regions that are suspected to harbor life, like the warm, potentially wet slopes of Mars. It used to be that all spacecraft headed to the red planet had to be baked at 112 degrees Celsius for at least a day. And that was before scientists concluded in the early 90s that Mars was dry and dead. Now, scientists are saying they might have to reinstate that step, even though it's going to make designing probes and rovers a bit more difficult. Now we have a story on cellular computing. This one's a little complicated. We're talking about using the machinery of cells to do computations. This isn't wholly new. Researchers have rigged bacterial cells before to turn on and off genes in reaction to this type of programming, a so-called genetic circuit. But this hasn't been shown in more complex mammalian cells. What's been the holdup uh, getting this into eukaryotes? To put it bluntly, making biocomputers is hard. Scientists scientists are essentially hacking the DNA of individual cells to get them to do what they want. One cool example is when researchers added a gene to bacteria to get it to light up in response to oxygen levels dropping. But triggering that kind of reaction requires inserting the gene and tweaking the rest of the DNA so the cell creates the right proteins in response to the right signals. Normally, and you know, you probably know all of this, but I'm just going to go through it, DNA gets translated into proteins starting with a molecule called RNA polymerase. This is the little enzyme that speeds up and down the double helix like the pool of a zipper, reading each DNA base and turning it into its matching unit of RNA. When an RNA strand is complete, it zips off to the cell's protein factory. The zipper knows where to start and where to stop 
because of two special snippets of DNA. One is called a promoter, and it sits just upstream of the gene that is to be transcribed. And another, called a termination sequence, tells it to stop. If you want to build complex circuits, like the ones we're talking about, the turning on and off of different genes must happen consistently. But the most commonly used switch, these are proteins that bind to specific genes and regulate their expressions called transcription factors. They don't always work consistently. Hmm, Especially in mammalian cells. Correct. But now researchers have done this without transcription factors. How are they able to make a gene circuit without those molecules? The scientists switched over to scissor-like enzymes that selectively cut out snippets of DNA called DNA recombinases. These enzymes function by recognizing two target stretches of DNA that act more or less as bookends. When a recombinase finds those bookends, it cuts out any DNA in between and stitches together the severed ends of the double helix. In this new experiment, scientists added the same gene that causes cells to light up or fluoresce that I mentioned earlier. Right in front of it was one of those termination sequences that should have told the zipper to stop. They also added two snippets of DNA above and below the termination sequence to signal that recombinase. When the promoter upstream the gene was activated, the RNA polymerase ran headfirst into the stop sequence. It stopped reading the DNA, and it didn't produce that fluorescent protein. But when scientists added a drug that switched on the recombinase, it leapt into action, spliced out the termination sequence, and then the RNA polymerase could make the fluorescent protein lighting up the cell. So the recombinase takes out a stop signal and the gene of interest is read off. Sarah, why don't you just answer these questions? That's exactly right. Okay, so we have a basic understanding of how this machinery would work. We have something that turns a recombinase on. We have something else that has a stop in front of it. And when the recombinase gets turned on, the stop is removed and we get our signaling molecule or fluorescent protein or some other signal um, that's turned on. So how is this a computer? Sarah. (laughs) It's like a computer because scientists are essentially coding biological material with specific instructions to perform yes-no functions or logical operations. Each operation that is carried out can then trip the next string of operations. Scientists even manage to make a biological version of something, wait for it, called a Boolean logic lookup table. The circuit in this case has six different inputs, which can combine in different ways to execute one of 16 different logical operations. Wow. Okay. So now we have how it works, how it's like a computer. So what will it do? The researchers talk about these being integrated into our bodies, not, you know, as little standalone biological computers. What kind of things would they do inside of people? We still have a long way to go before any of that happens, but when the system is up to speed, scientists hope that it can create new medical therapies that could create tissue on demand by telling stem cells which types of cells to turn into. Uh, They also think 
that it might be able to help us wipe out tumors in our own bodies in response to cancer biomarkers. Last up, we have a story on a drug arms race. This is actually a news feature story, so we aren't going to get into all the details that were reported. But basically, this is about Ohio, China, heroin, and exotic synthetic drugs. Let's start in Ohio, Catherine. Over the past five years, there's been a rash of overdoses in opioid users. But it's not from using heroin? That's right. In a game of chemical one-upsmanship, Labs in China are creating opioids that are tens of thousands of times more deadly than heroin. One example is fentanyl, a synthetic opiate about 100 times more potent than morphine that's used for pain during and after surgery and also in late-stage cancers. Just two milligrams of it, which is equivalent to a couple of grains in a vial, is a lethal dose. Another is carfentanyl, an elephant tranquilizer that's 10,000 times more potent than morphine. And these drugs are wreaking havoc on users in the U.S. In 2015, there were more than 33,000 deaths from opiates, up more than 4,000 from 2014. And in one week alone, carfentanil-laced drugs killed 176 people in Hamilton County, Ohio, which is actually very close to where I'm from. Well, let's go back to China for a second here. You mentioned that this is coming from China and that there are variations on fentanyl that are being created there. Until recently, fentanyl was largely unregulated in China. In late 2015, the DEA persuaded its Chinese counterpart to add 116 synthetic drugs to its list of controlled substances. Fentanyl and several analogs were included. In response, Underground Chinese labs began tweaking the fentanyl molecule, which is really easy to alter for anyone with basic knowledge of chemistry and lab tools. By adding chemical groups, unscrupulous chemists have created new unregulated variants, some of which are even more potent than the ones I mentioned. And these are getting to the U.S., in the mail, basically, right? Yeah. So a really interesting thing that I found out by reading this great story um, by Kathleen McLaughlin is that uh, one of the ways in which users in the U.S. have been able to find these chemicals, first of all, it's very easy to find, you know, do a quick search online, you'll come up with all sorts of unscrupulous vendors, but they often try to um, package them, you know, in all sorts of uh, clever ways. Uh, One way in which this was shipped, I think, to Canada was by actually using containers that were marked printer toner. Hmm. Well, if these drugs are being changed so much or so frequently, how does anybody know what they're looking at if they start to see a a rash of, of overdoses? Yeah, and I think this is the crux of one of the many problems that we're discussing here, because on the one hand, you have users who have no idea what it is that they're taking. You have dealers who are also more or less in the dark because something could be laced with a variant that is either stronger than what you expected or is completely unknown. It's also posing a huge problem uh, to law enforcement. We're talking about everybody from first responders on the scene, and so that's you know police officers, firefighters, EMS, to people in the coroner's office. What's really interesting is you know it's pretty common for these first responders to sample drugs that they find on the scene to see 
what they might actually include. The problem is, is that these drugs are so potent that there were 11 first responders in New Jersey who were all sickened because of the dust that came up from these drugs as they entered the room. So you have this issue of safety for everyone involved, but you also have the issue of, you know, what do these drugs actually contain? Okay, Catherine, now is when we talk about what else is on the site this week. We have a story on how fruit eating may have been responsible for big brains and another on how global trade contributes to air pollution deaths around the world. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a breakdown of Trump's latest efforts to repeal major climate rules and a Q&A with former Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisek is an editor for our online daily news site. Don't forget to check out the transcripts for the last few episodes. Let us know what you think or just download them and we'll find out through analytics. Those are on the science site. We're getting them for free now from Scribby.com, but we have to decide if it's worth doing down the road. So a special thanks to Scribby for this. Uh, Audio transcription perfected. Scribby.com, C-R-I-B-I-E.com. 75 cents a minute at 99% accuracy. The best deal on the internet for audio transcription. Visit Scribby.com slash Science Mag to let them know we sent you. You may not think much of the dirt beneath your feet, but it holds three times as much carbon as Earth's atmosphere, and scientists worry that more carbon will escape in a warming world. I'm Julia Rosen. Caitlin Hicksprees is here to give us the scoop on soil carbon. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for having me, Julia. Let's start with this. Why study soil carbon? I am an ecosystem ecologist, and I study how terrestrial ecosystems respond to climate change. And it's important to understand how terrestrial ecosystems respond to climate change because they can be either a positive or negative feedback to climate change. A positive feedback is if the soils start respiring more carbon dioxide due to climate change. And so they put CO2 into the atmosphere, which increases the amount of warming in the atmosphere. On the other hand, plants take up CO2 when they photosynthesize. And so if they take up more CO2 as a result of climate change, that would reduce CO2 in the atmosphere and be a negative feedback to climate change. So it's important to understand how terrestrial ecosystems are responding to climate change in order to predict how much CO2 will be in our atmosphere in the future. And where does all this carbon in soil come from? The carbon in soil ultimately comes from plants. So it could be leaf litter. So the leaves that plants drop can get decomposed and can leach down into the soil. Plants have roots, and as the roots grow, some of the roots die. Those roots that die become part of soil organic carbon. And also the roots themselves, they exudate sugars, and those sugars also can become part of soil carbon. Why are soil carbon emissions expected to increase with climate change? In the soil, it's not just this dead carbon that ultimately came from plants. There's also live microbes, bacteria and fungi. And those microbes feed on the organic matter in soils, so on those dead plant parts. And as it warms, the metabolism of those microbes is going to increase. And as their metabolism increases, they're going to feed on more of that soil organic carbon. And when they feed on that soil organic carbon, just like we do, they breathe out carbon dioxide. And so as it warms, they're going to breathe out more carbon dioxide, which will reach the atmosphere. Also, 
Bacteria and fungi can't feed like we do. They don't have mouths. So in order to access the organic carbon in soils, they release enzymes through their cell membranes and cell walls, which then break the bonds in the organic carbon into these small molecular weight molecules, which they can then take up through their cell membranes. And so as it warms, these enzymes become more effective and more able to break these bonds. So those are two ways that warming will increase CO2 release from soils by making the microbes metabolize faster and by making their enzymes that break down soil organic carbon more effective. For this study, you did a real-world test of how soil responds to warming. How did you do it? We went to a forest soil in a coniferous forest in the Sierra Nevada foothills, and we chose this soil because it had really nice soil horizon. So you had this dark organic layer and then these more red clay layers. So it was a nice, well-developed soil. And this soil is a type that's representative of a lot of different soils in temperate landscapes underneath forest. In this soil, we place these very long 2.4 meter deep metal rods. And within those rods, we placed a heating cable like the type people use in Northern climates to prevent their pipes from freezing in the winter. And so we used many of these rods arranged in a circle to warm a whole profile of soil from the top all the way down to 100 centimeters. And we also put some of these heating cables at the soil surface. So we had warming from above and then warming from the sides. What sets your study apart from others, as far as I understand it, is that you warmed the soil to a deeper depth. And when you measured how much CO2 was released, it was more than previous studies have found. Did that surprise you? It did surprise us because... There was kind of an expectation that the soil organic carbon at deeper depths would be protected from decomposition by microbes because a lot of times the soil at deeper depths is associated with soil minerals and they are bonded to the soil organic matter in such a way that the microbes enzymes are not effective. And so we thought that if it was protected in minerals, then it wouldn't respond to warming because the microbes would not be able to get to it. However, what we found was that there's still a lot of carbon at depth that's not protected by minerals, and it was that carbon that responded to the warming. Do you think that researchers have actually underestimated how much CO2 soils will release into the atmosphere as they warm? It's possible. Many of the studies that have been done on soil warming, and there have been many studies, have warmed from the soil surface. And depending on the methods they used, they didn't necessarily warm deeper soils. And so when they measured the response of soils to warming, they missed out on the response of deeper soils. And it's possible that some of the methods they used did warm deeper soils, but no one actually bothered to measure what the temperatures were below about 20 centimeters or what was happening below 20 centimeters. So it's possible that they were missing this response. Based on your research, could soil emissions make it harder to slow or stop climate change? It is possible that soil emissions will amplify the effects of man-made climate change by putting more CO2 into the atmosphere. However, soils are only half the story. The other part of the story is what's happening with plants, because plants as they photosynthesize, take up CO2 from the atmosphere. And it's possible with warming, the plants will photosynthesize more, which would actually reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So really, to understand what the effects are overall on climate change, you need to know the balance of what's happening with the soils and the plants. And our study only focused on the soils. Right. So this is just one piece of the puzzle. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Caitlin. Thanks so much, Julia. It was fun. Caitlin Hicksbreeze and colleagues write about soil carbon in this week's issue of Science. 
everyone. This is Jen Goldbeck, and welcome to the Science Books podcast segment for March. This month, we're looking at Never Out of Season, How Having the Food We Want, When We Want It, Threatens Our Food Supply and Our Future by Rob Dunn. You may not think a book about agricultural policy and science could read like a thriller, but every chapter of this book could probably be its own movie. It's one of the most engaging science books I've ever read, and I'm really excited to have Rob Dunn here to talk about it. Thank you very much. So we're in a time right now where there's far less famine than there ever has been. So tell me what the problem is with having food that never goes out of season. So I think there's sort of two things here. And so one is that it, that's always been true and it remains true that all of the food you get, wherever it comes from, depends on many, many species we know very little about. I mean, I think a key first point is this dependence. Everything you see in the store and everything you eat at home is dependent on moths or butterflies or fungi or wild relatives that people on Earth know very little about. And then the second piece of that is that the more intensive our agriculture becomes, the more we farm very few things at big scales and ship them everywhere, the more dependent we become on all those species. And so when you eat the same thing, regardless of where you live, regardless of the season, you're part of this, this big story in which we've simplified agriculture and moved food around the world. And in doing so, have increased our dependence on all of these other species that might save us from that problem. Your description of the Irish potato famine had a really profound emotional impact on me. And I had known about the famine in general, but I had no idea that Ireland was entirely dependent on potatoes as its source of nutrition at that point. And so then in 1845, the blight arrives, this fungus that starts spreading from field to field, turning the potatoes into this sulfurous black mass. And the famine follows after that. And I wanted to read one excerpt from the book that I think really captures what it was like in the midst of the famine in Ireland. You write... Ireland stank. In 1845, it was just the odor of the dying potatoes. But by 1847, this odor was accompanied everywhere by that of human bodies, the naked and starving families alongside the road. Others lay half dead, half alive, prostrate in a state of mute yearning. Everywhere, human bodies gave off a sweet odor of living decay. Then there was the more overpowering smell of the dead. In the fields, they huddled together on beds in homes, piled in mass graves where they were lowered one after another, day after day. So let's start there. Tell me about the famine in Ireland. Yeah, the, the potato is a really weird crop because where it's native in the Andes, it was farmed in many, many varieties. And so if, even today, if you go to the Andes, there are thousands of kinds of potatoes. But by a bunch of quirks of the what the conquistadors did and who chose what, very few varieties of potatoes ended up in Europe. But people eventually came to really like them, and they came to like them in part because if you had a small plot of land, it could make enough food for your family. And if you divided that plot of land and gave a little bit to you know, each of your kids, it could still produce enough food for a family. And so in many of the poorest parts of Europe, the potato became not just a crop, but it became this thing that allowed populations to become denser. And it allowed people to continue to survive. And Ireland's sort of this extreme case of a, actually a much more general phenomenon in which people really shifted to potatoes. And you point out for a lot of people, this was the only solid food they were eating. And they were eating like 50 to 80 potatoes a day. Well, it's, it's amazing. In some ways, it's like before the potato famine, that in some ways is like the success story we're building towards, right? 
that this is what the industrialization of agriculture, if we get it just right, looks like. You have enough food for everybody. If you had potatoes and milk, that was enough to keep everybody healthy. And so all the descriptions of the Irish before the potato famine talk about people, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of clothes, but they looked great, you know, and they had tons of kids and the kids were all kind of chunky. And it was this weird kind of success. And it was the first crop that we really fertilized in any real way. So I think it's really tempting to think about the Irish potato famine as like the last story of some agricultural time past. And, and then all of a sudden it shows up, you know, it spreads field to field. And because nobody really knows what it is, they just know that the potatoes die. It really has this sort of magically real quality to it that really struck me when I was reading the stories about the famine. You know, that you know some horrible thing is sweeping through the fields and it smells and, and, and everything has gone terribly wrong. And now suddenly the thing that feeds your whole family is disappearing. And then year by year, it, it it just destroyed the potato crops of Ireland. And depending on who's counting, a, a million Irish die, a million Irish flee. Many of those who flee also die. The demographics of the United States change. And all of this happens because of something that nobody quite knows to name. There are a lot more great stories in the book. You talk about how an eco-terrorist basically destroyed the chocolate crop in Brazil and how scientists in Russia sacrificed their lives to protect seed stores during World War II. And the reader really comes away with an understanding both of the risks that follow from having a homogeneous agricultural practice, but also the benefits that come from using these plants that are extremely productive and can feed a lot of people. And so I wonder what your advice would be to me as a consumer if I want to buy food in a way that helps protect us from coming catastrophes that will attack the plants that we use now, but also consume in a reasonable way where I'm not spending a huge amount of money on my food. So I think there may be two parts to that question. One part would be to say the natural tendency of science and technology is to do what the farmers would do, which is to choose the version that's going to make the most and to choose the version that's going to make the most fastest. Science and scientific industries and the big ag businesses, they're going to keep pushing new technologies to keep us ahead of the pests and pathogens. The fewer people are, that are engaged in keeping up with the pests and pathogens, the more beholden we are to that small group of people and to that small list of crops they work on. The good news in that regard is that I think that there are a lot of ways to help, and those mostly relate to daily actions you can take to favor biological diversity. And so some of what you can do is to, you know, help facilitate good policy. Part of it is, is helping to make sure that, you know, we conserve the places around you and around the world where we may find genes or wild species we can use in agriculture. Every year we borrow new genes and new species from the wilderness and use them to help us sustain farms. You can contribute to groups like Seed Savers that work to save heritage varieties of seeds in people's kitchens and backyards so that we keep those varieties going when we need them. And then you can make choices when you buy food. If we favor even a little bit of work, a little bit of farming of heritage varieties of crops, that can be enough to help keep those going in the future and to help to save all the species associated with them so that when we need those species, they're around somewhere. Well, Rob Dunn, thanks very much for the fascinating book. I wish we had more time to talk about it and for the conversation today. 
Well, thank you so much. No, this was great. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to all of you for listening. That's it for March. We'd love to hear your feedback and comments on the science book blog, Books et al. And in the meantime, we'll be back next month with another book. Thanks. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.